I could say that because Lisa's not in this service. So, uh, no, he is actually away in Washington State. Um, his mother is on the brink of eternity. And so I got a call on Friday afternoon asking if I would do the message, and I responded yes. So, I mean, don't feel bad for me. Feel bad for the guy who had to fill in for common ground. He was way more nervous than I was. But, um, but you know, do pray for Jack. He's with, uh, he has... I believe five unbelieving family members that he's trying to reach out to, and this is a good occasion to do that. And also, uh, and a bit of good or bad news, depending on how you look at it, Jack Elliott went to be with the Lord yesterday. And so he went strong all the way to the end, and you know that he is a happy man right now. So don't cry for him, but pray for his family and just uh, the legacy that he left behind. So let me pray for both Jack and uh, Jack's family um, before we begin. Father God, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity to come together, and we praise you for the life of Jack Elliott and how he went hard after you, lived his life to the fullest, and Lord, we thank you as a zealous evangelist, a committed Christian, and, and now you sought to bring him home. We just pray that you will really minister to the family left behind, for those who don't know you, that they might come to know you. We also pray for Jack as he ministers to his family and as they're confronted with the death of their mother. I pray that you'll give Jack boldness and sensitivity as he communicates his, uh, the truth of your word to them. And we pray for me, Lord. Help me to preach the, this message in a way that brings glory and honor to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the title of this message is RSVP. <clears throat> and for those of you who don't know it already, RSVP uh, stands for the French phrase, Répondez s'il vous plaît, or as they say in my native Kansas, Répondez s'il vous plaît. I did not take French in high school, which means uh, please reply. This means that the person who is sending you the invitation would like you to send a response as to whether or not you will actually attend the event. Now, the issue that many people try to work through is why is it that we have this phrase in French? Now, many of the practices of Western etiquette come from the French court of Louis the 14th in the late 17th and early 18th century. Whenever they would send out an invitation, they'd have the the time and the date and the occasion on the front. But when you looked at the back, they'd have the rules for for engagement, when you should arrive, what attire to wear. And, And these tickets were called etiquette. So as a result, when we imported the, the manners and customs of the French, we adopted the term etiquette, and thus many of the manners and customs return, you know, retain their, their same French name. And honestly, uh, if you ask me, the RSVP is a really good custom. I know as a college pastor, there are many times when we labor to plan a retreat. We reserve three to four cabins. We buy a boatload of food. And then the weekend before the retreat, I call my secretary and say, how many do we have? Eight people. Which, when you do complicated math equations, that actually means that 35 college students will actually show up at the retreat. <laughs> and it's interesting, when I, when I talk to them and I, and I, I ask why they're so hesitant to RSVP, they they tell me that, well, I want to make sure that I'm not the only one who's going to be there, to which I respond, hello, I'll be there. <laughs> I mean, isn't that a good reason to go on a retreat? Yeah, I think so. You know, they want to keep their options open in case something better comes along, or they, they want to see if that special someone will be there. 
But nonetheless, I'm a gracious man, and I know that there is a bottom line to this whole retreat thing, so I need them to come because we need them to help pay for those cabins. So I let them come. (laughs) And as fun as those retreats are and as joyous time of fellowship and singing and praise and teaching, um, it's really a flashlight when compared to the solar rays of heaven. See, God offers mankind a great and glorious time of celebration, a heavenly banquet. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for our admission so that we will no longer be separated by our own sin from a holy God. He sent him to die so that we might be reconciled and dine with him forever in eternity. And this banquet can be yours free of charge, but you have to RSVP. You have to make a commitment. In other words, you have to commit your life to Christ. Now, in a crowd like this, I imagine there's three kinds of people. There's people who know they're Christians and are Christians. There's people who think they're Christians, but they're not Christians. And you have people who know that they're not Christians and are not Christians. Now, if you are a Christian, I hope that you'll be encouraged to maintain your commitment to Christ on account of this message. But if you are not a Christian, whether you know it or not, I pray that you will be challenged to RSVP, to give your life to Christ and to make the proper response to the invitation of the gospel. So today we're going to look at the parable of the Great Supper in Luke 14, 14 or 15 through 25. Sorry, got my numbers mangled. Luke 14, 15 to 24. And we're going to learn how to RSVP to the Lord's invitation so that you might have eternal life. Now, I have a little acrostic for you to help remember this message. It's realize that the kingdom is ready, R. You must submit to the summons, S. Expect vengeance if you reject, V. And admit your poverty, P. So there you have it, RSVP. Realize the kingdom is ready. You must submit to the summons. Expect vengeance if you reject. And admit your poverty. Now in Luke chapter 14, when you look at the broader context, you see that Jesus is in the middle of a very tense situation. One of the leaders of the Pharisees invites Jesus to join them for a Sabbath day dinner. And he does so with an agenda. If you look at verse 1, you see that they were watching him closely. Now, just like the press will scrutinize a president or a celebrity, they were watching every move. So you have Jesus in a room full of Pharisees and lawyers eating dinner, which sounds like a fun occasion. (laughs) And seated in there was a man with dropsy, edema, this, this inflammatory disease, and, you know, obviously a plant. So Jesus sees what they're asking. And what they're trying to get him to do. And so we asked them in verse three, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now we know from previous encounters with Jesus that the answer is no. So what does Jesus do? He heals the man on the Sabbath. And then he tells his audience that you all are a bunch of hypocrites because you would do the same thing for your son on the Sabbath. In fact, you'd do the same thing for your animal on the Sabbath. So that was confrontation number one. Confrontation number two comes in Luke fourteen seven, where G- Jesus noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. 
Thus, Jesus confronts the guests on their pride and concludes with a little story and concludes his little story with this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if you don't humble yourself, you will reap eternal damnation. That's the second confrontation. Now, after confronting the guest, Jesus turns his guns to the host. In verses 12 through 13, he looks at the guest list. He notices that the, the and he, he gives another story where he talks about how this host should not have invited his friends, relatives, and rich neighbors, because those people will repay you in kind when they have their own party. But rather, you should invite the, the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the college student who can never repay. Sorry, college students. I still love you, by the way. But you see, the best hospitality is the one that is not exchanged. Now, this would be a positive lesson, except for the fact that this host invited all of his rich, wealthy, socially esteemed friends. So in the course of this dinner, Jesus rebukes basically everybody in the room, except for the man with dropsy. He confronts the the people jockeying for position at the table And he also rebukes the host. This was a very tense dinner situation. Now imagine that you are hosting a Thanksgiving dinner. You invite all your friends, you invite your relatives, family members, neighbors. And it's a huge feast. You're preparing two 25-pound turkeys. And your Uncle Jerry shows up at the door as you're busily preparing for the festivities with a friend, a special guest, Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh has decided to join your Thanksgiving dinner. You think, well, that's great. Then about 10 minutes later, the doorbell rings again, and it's your mother-in-law with her special guest, Howard Dean. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, you look for the cameras. Is somebody playing some kind of joke on us? What's going on here? All of a sudden, your Thanksgiving dinner has gotten much more interesting, hasn't it? You know, all seems to be going cordial and well until the topics of affirmative action, abortion, the upcoming elections is thrown into the mix. And next thing you know, World War III is erupting in your dining room. No, this is Thanksgiving. This is about Puritans and Indians getting together, peace and tranquility. And so in a desperate attempt... To try to quell the storm, you say, isn't it great that all of us Americans can celebrate this wonderful holiday? A tension breaker, trying to find the common ground. Hey, we have something in common, right? Now, one of the guests in Luke fourteen fifteen tries a similar tactic. He's trying to ease this tension created by all these confrontations of Jesus. And he says this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread In the kingdom of God. Now, some of you know, one thing that the Pharisees and Jesus had in common was they had a common belief in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe it, but the Pharisees did. And so what he's saying is he's capitalizing on Jesus's reference to the resurrection and saying, Jesus, isn't it great that you and me and everybody here, we're all going to be a part of this heavenly banquet. He's trying to find the common ground. But in doing so, he's making some self-righteous assumptions. He's assuming 
that he's going to be there. He's assuming that the rest of the guests are going to be there as well. So here Jesus is at dinner and, and his motivation is not to have this peaceful dinner. His motivation is for these people to have peace with God. And so he tells them a little story so that they will realize their spiritual state. Let's turn to Luke 14, 15 through 24. Starting in verse 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the cities and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So the first point, you have to realize that the kingdom is ready. This is from verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited the many and the dinner hour. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. Now, at this point in the parable, we're introduced to three major themes. The man who throws the dinner, the dinner itself and the invited guest. Now, for those of you who are familiar with parables, you know that though there is one central point to the parable, the different components of the parables correspond to present realities. So let's look at these one by one. The first character that you have is the man hosting the meal. And this is a pretty easy one. If you look at verses 22 and 23, he is referred to as master and Lord. So guess who that is? That's God. God is the one who is throwing this banquet. The second aspect is the dinner. Now, throughout the Bible, we often see that God paints a picture of the coming kingdom as that of a banquet where Christ will reign supreme and the dinner guest will be reclining at a table loaded with food in a hall flooded with light in intimate fellowship with them, with each other and with the Messiah. Look at Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. In Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. In Matthew 8, 11 through 12, and I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 26, 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. 
Then in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. See, the banquet is associated with God's kingdom, which begs the question, what is God's kingdom? Well, God's kingdom is a place where God is ruling. And essentially, when someone gives their hearts to Christ, God rules there. Look at Colossians 1.13, where it mentions that they are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Thus, every time we see somebody convert, the kingdom of God advances. Another soul is added to that number. Now, ultimately, this kingdom will be consummated when Jesus comes back and sets up his reign here on earth. But there's an interesting aspect to this parable. That is, that is ready now. Now, before we get to that, let's look at the third character. Now, just as the the Lord refers to the master, you have the dinner referring to the great banquet, the kingdom of heaven, essentially heaven. The third one is the many. These are the ones who receive the initial invitation. They're also the ones who refuse to come. Now, if the man corresponds to the present kingdom, if the man corresponds to God, and if the banquet corresponds to the kingdom, then the many correspond to the Jews. You see, when you look at the Old and New Testament, you see that God initially offered this kingdom to the Jews. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So the major players established, let's look at this text. But he said to him, the man was giving a big dinner and he invited the many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. Now in this parable, the master invites his guests to this banquet and he does something that's very customary during that time. He gives two invitations. The first one is kind of the save the date. We're having this feast on this day. Can you attend? To which the people all would say yes. And then it's kind of an upper class courtesy. What they would do is they'd actually send their servant to go fetch them when the dinner is ready. That way, these people of high esteem don't have to wait around while the food is cooking. So he goes out and he tells everyone that the dinner is ready. Essentially, the Lord is calling Israel to make good on their commitment that they made through the prophets to RSVP, to actually come and celebrate that the kingdom of God is with them right now. Now, all these Pharisees would have thought that they did RSVP. And so it's interesting that Jesus is telling them that is with you right now. The kingdom of God is looking at you in the face. All you have to do is repent, receive me as your Messiah, and you will be able to dine in this banquet, which you have been anticipating since you were a boy. The kingdom is ready right now. You can have access to it right now. Now, when I was a younger believer, I misunderstood this concept of, let's say, eternal life. For me, eternal life was living for a very long time. So when I die, I live forever in heaven. But then a thoughtful Christian pointed out to me that those who go to hell 
live forever. In some sense, they also have eternal life. You see, eternal life is not talking about the duration of life. It's not talking about the quantity of life. It is talking about the quality of life. See, Jesus, when he offers you the opportunity to dine with him, you can enjoy the privileges of salvation right away. See, on earth we have flawed but fulfilling fellowship. But in heaven, that's going to be perfect. On earth we have imperfect communion with God, but in heaven, it's going to explode. In, on earth, we have, we have to struggle to wrap our sin-stained minds around the truth of Scripture. But we could still get a lot of it. But in heaven, our knowledge is going to be perfect. So that's when Jesus says that this kingdom is ready, that eternal life is ready. He's telling you it's waiting for you right now. You don't have to be catechized to receive eternal life. You don't have to clean up your, you don't have to clean up your life before you come to Christ. You don't have to go to church for a few times. You don't have to accrue an amount, a certain amount of good works. You don't have to be purged in purgatory. Eternal life is here and waiting for you right now. You only have to open up your hearts and accept the invitation. In other words, what you must do is you must submit to the sovereign summons which God is giving you, which brings us to our next point. You must submit to the summons in verses 18 through 20. So the servant goes out and calls upon those who made a commitment, and this is the response that he receives. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Now, in this section, we find that every single invitee makes an excuse. And in the words of the evangelist Billy Sunday, an excuse is the shell of a reason stuffed with a lie. An excuse is a shell of a reason stuffed with a lie. So let's look at these excuses one by one. The first one, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Essentially, this person has made a large real estate purchase sight unseen. Now, unless you have money to burn, this is a bad idea. You, before you buy a house, you have to look at market trends. You have to examine the location. You have to look at uh, what the other homes went for in the neighborhood. You would even have to inspect, you know, check for termites Check on the electrical, the plumbing, before you cough up all this money to buy that piece of land or that home. But what's interesting is even if this is legit, even if the the sale would fall through unless this person did an investigation, there is no reason why this person couldn't have just delayed it by a few hours so that he can honor the commitment that he made. In verse 19, another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. This is akin to buying a large tractor without test driving it. Now, this person is buying five yoke of oxen. And what's interesting is that this shows us that he had a lot of money. Because in that day and age, most people, most farmers only had enough land that would require one or maybe two yoke of oxen. So if he had that much money, he could have hired somebody 
He could have used one of his servants, dispatched them to go ahead and test drive it. Yet, he did not do so. He didn't even delay. He flaked on the party. He did not honor his commitment. See, in both of these cases, these men placed their financial priorities above their commitment. And what this shows you is that wealth and mammon kept them from enjoying the heavenly banquet. Later on in the gospel, Jesus warns in Luke sixteen thirteen, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Wealth and God compete for the affections of men. Later on, you see that in the gospel, you see that Jesus has an interesting confrontation with a rich young ruler. In Luke 18, 22, he peers into his heart and he says, one thing you still lack. That is one thing you still lack to go to heaven. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And sadly, the young man could not do it because he loved his wealth too much. See, people often reject Christ for financial reasons. They know that if they become Christians, it will change the way that they do their finances. Honesty might have to come into play when they fill out their tax forms. They may have to stop paying people under the table. They may have to start sacrificially giving to the Lord in obedience to his commandments. They may have to free up their schedule or, or take a lesser job so that they can faithfully attend their church. Like any commitment, a commitment to Christ will take time. What's interesting is in an interview with Time Magazine, Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, had this to say. Just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. Yeah, consider the example of Zacchaeus. For years, this was a man who extorted the innocent with his goons extracting extra tax revenue from them. He acquired quite a, quite a sum of money. And when Jesus came into town and he saw the preciousness of Jesus Christ, he said these amazing words, behold, Lord, half of my possessions, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what did he receive? He received salvation and a chance to literally dine with Jesus Christ. Consider the third excuse. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. Now this alludes to the, some of the cultural customs of the day which would not allow a woman to attend such a banquet for whatever reason. And so what he's saying is, I don't want to be away from my wife. And with this excuse, the issue is the pull of the family. Doesn't want to leave his family. Many teens don't want to follow Christ because they're afraid that they might lose their friends. Many wives are afraid to passionately pursue Christ because they're afraid that it'll create a great distance between them and their unsaved husband. Many couples, many Many teenagers or even younger adults don't want to break up with their significant other because 
or don't want to pursue Christ because it might lead to a breakup. You have many Mormons and Muslims and Jews who don't want to follow Christ because they'll lose their family. And in a few verses after the conclusion of this parable, Jesus says these remarkable words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Family is a good thing, but do not make it an idol. Do not allow your commitment to your family to control your destiny. See, with each of these excuses, there is some semblance of of legitimacy. Let's say they are legit. Let's say it really will cause him to be estranged from his wife. Let's say that not inspecting this business deal might cause it to fall through and he leaves his life possessions. He loses his life possessions. Is that still a reason to push Christ and his invitation aside? Someone once wrote to Emily Post, who was an etiquette expert of another generation, and asked this, what is the correct procedure when one is invited to the White House but has a previous engagement? Replied Post, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command and it automatically cancels any other engagement. Jesus doesn't care what excuse you have. He doesn't care what you lay before the table. He calls you right now, no matter your station in life, no matter what you have to do tomorrow or next week or what you have to do in the next 10 minutes to commit your life to Christ. And yet people still make excuses. People will say, well, I don't want to follow Christ because I don't need a crutch. A nice self-flattering, I'm a strong person and Christianity is for the weak. Or they might say, I'll do so later. But you know, to say that you're going to do so later is to deny it now. And it's basically to say no and forsake Christ. Don't, don't kid yourselves. When you tell anybody that you're going to do something later, you never intend on doing it. Or you might say, I will only do so when I feel it in my heart. That's like saying, I'm not going to cross the street until I feel it in my heart. It's a decision of the will, right? I don't want to make an insincere commitment. Well, we make a lot of commitments. The thing is you stand by the commitment that the sincerity will come. Or you say, I might want to have my fun first. Well, how much fun will you have in hell? Right? Or my, my intellectual mind struggles to embrace a resurrection. Like, who are you kidding? Jesus was the smartest man on earth and he believed in the resurrection. Or I need to investigate every other religion more thoroughly. Really? Are they that compelling? It is no accident that the Book of Mormon and the, and the Quran still give credence to the Bible. The true religion, in many ways, for, um, provides inspiration for all the false ones. Why waste your time when the truth is in front of you right now? Or I will need to, uh, it'll take up too much of my time. Well, hell is a long time. If you want to make best use of your time, spend it in heaven instead of hell. Or I'm already a good person. No, you're not. Come on. You know it. God knows it. Everyone knows it. You're not already a good person. The Bible says that no one is good, not even one. So you can give it many excuses that you like. But if you spurn the offer of salvation, you will perish in hell forever. And I know that hell is a scary word. And you might accuse me of using scare tactics. But fear is a good thing. 
If you have a two-ton grizzly bear charging at you at 20 miles per hour, you should be afraid. And that fear should prompt you to run the other way. Knowing that hell is bearing down on you should terrify you to repentance and to rush into the arms of a loving Savior who will protect you and shield you from the wrath to come. See, if you do not accept this commitment, you can expect vengeance. And we get this in verses 21 and 24. In 21, we read, And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. And in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. His reaction is very appropriate. Now let's say you decided to throw a big party. Yeah, you won the lottery, and so after paying off the building product project, you, you want to use the goods to celebrate. So you go to Costco. Well, first of all, you send out your invitations, and you get all the RSVPs. And so with this guest list, you're able to pre- you know, prepare for your feast. You go to Costco, and you buy 200, 200 T-bone steaks, special steak seasoning rub, 500 potatoes and cheese and sour cream to make twice-baked potatoes. Pita chips, spinach artichoke dip, gourmet root beer, large pretzels with big salt crystals on them. And on top of that, you book some entertainment. You get a bounce house for the kids. One of those big ones, you know, with like four chambers on it. It takes up your whole backyard, but you run in your neighbor's backyard to put it there. You get a stage and you, you contact Skillet, Jeremy Camp, Stephen Curtis Chapman, and Bill Gaither so that there's something for everyone. <laughs> so, the, so the dinner time comes and steaks are hot and ready. The twice-baked potatoes, which you worked all day to make, by the way, and those things are tough to make, hope you know, is all ready to go. And there's not a soul there. You have you and the waiters and a bunch of T-bone steaks. So you call up your friends and say, hey, hey what's the deal? Uh, why aren't you here? Well, I just bought a timeshare today, Dave, and I need to check it out. Or uh, I just bought a new SUV and you need to test drive it. Or, or my wife really wants me to stay home tonight. You see, Nacho Libre just came out on video and we really want to watch it. <laughs> now, what those people are saying is this, is I know that you went through great personal expense to make this feast, but I have other plans. Now, what they did was inconsiderate, it was rude, and it was unloving, and you would be rightfully upset. Now, the master has a similar reaction. When the invitees refuse his invitation, he burns with anger. The slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. And this is the anger that burns towards Israel when they scourged, rejected, tortured, and crucified his son. He gave them the banquet and they slap him in the face. Let's say you gave your 16-year-old daughter a new car on her birthday, a royal blue Ford Mustang. You park it in the parking lot and it has one of those big Lexus commercial ribbons on it. You know, and you're thinking this is going to be great. So she comes out of the door and and you're holding the the keys. Hey, sweetie, here you go. Well, she comes over. She grabs her keys 
and throws them on the hood, scratching the paint and denting it, slaps you in the face and says, I wanted a new cell phone, daddy. Now, is she getting a new cell phone? Are you just going to say, oh, geez, I'm sorry, sweetie. Go ahead and get in the car and we'll go and get, go to T-Mobile and buy a new cell phone. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, well, you're not going to get a cell phone. You're not going to get this car. In fact, you're going to be working all summer to pay for the dent you put in that thing. And it's going to be a long time before I do something nice for you again. When you reject a generous offer of salvation, when you spit on the cross of Christ, when you trample his blood underfoot, do not think that when you stand before a radiant and glorious and righteous judge, that he's going to give you a second chance. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, there is room in the precious blood of Christ. There's room at the gospel feast. There is room in the church on earth. There is room in heaven. But if you will not occupy this room, I must solemnly tell you, there is room in hell. Whatever is holding you back, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a financial commitment, whether it's some sort of secret pleasure that you have, or perhaps the desire to want to control your own life, none of that is worth hell. None of that compares to the great and glorious life-changing truth of the gospel. See, what you have to realize is that you have nothing. There is nothing on this earth that compares to the grandeur of heaven. And what you need to do is admit your poverty. And the slave came back and reported to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lane to the city and bring in here the poor crippled blind and lame. And the slave said, master, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the, along the hedges and compel them. To come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. No, going back to the barbecue, you have all this food. You have Jeremy Camp tuning his guitar. You're not going to just let that go to waste. So what do you do? You invite your friends, your neighbors. You go knocking on doors and saying, hey, anybody want a free steak dinner? It's yours. And so this master sends out his servant to all the downtrodden of society, the dependents, the lame, the crippled. And, and this was a social taboo. I mean, they would, you know, people in the Roman Greco world would invite the people a notch lower than them. The A-list actors would invite the B-list actors so that they'll get, you know, flattery all night. But you don't invite the homeless people. You don't invite the addicts. But that's what they did. He wanted to fill the room. And so the servant compels them to come. He doesn't force them. But he answers their objection. You know what objection you would have with your poor, blind, and crippled? If someone wants to give you all this great stuff, what's the catch? Surely this couldn't really be an offer for me, could it? But it is. You see, they're... Their poverty worked in their favor. You see, someone who was poor could not afford to buy oxen. Someone who was blind could not investigate his new land. And the poor, blind, and crippled were not necessarily the choice candidates for marriage. 
So in their poverty, they had no excuse. They had all the time to do so. You see, the people who want the kingdom are not the people who have everything, but the people who realize that they have nothing. And think about it. What's easier? If your net worth is $100 to give up your life savings to follow Christ, or is it easier if your net worth is a million dollars to give out, give up your net worth to follow Christ? What's easier? $100, right? You see, if you know that you have nothing, it's really easy to give it up, isn't it? And the problem with most people is that they, is that they don't realize that they have nothing. They see a big house, a new Lexus, a trip to Hawaii, a timeshare in, in Palm Desert. But what God sees is nothing. In Philippians 3.8, we read more than that. I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You are all bankrupt. You all have nothing. You're not giving up anything. You're giving up garbage to follow Christ. It's a very good exchange. See, a hundred years from now, no one will care about the size of your bank account. They won't care about who you dated, who you married. They won't care about what kind of job or position you had. The only thing that you would care about is, are you enjoying the glories of heaven? Nothing that you have on this planet is worth clinging to, to send your soul to hell. You see, the gospel of Luke proclaims this present reality of God's kingdom And he says it's here for the taking and to reject the announcement and the arrival of his kingdom is to miss both his present realization and his future reality. To reject Jesus is to reject God. And this parable teaches us a great deal about God and and his providential rule over history. See, God offers this kingdom to the nation of Israel and, and her leaders in particular. And from the time of Abraham, when he promised the patriarch that his descendants will be blessed to the time of Moses, where he promises to make them a kingdom of priests, he always had a special place for Israel. See, God chose Israel to be a beacon for him. They were going to be the place that would host his glory as they would, as they hosted the temple. It was to them that he gave them the law. It was to them that the throne of David, where the Messiah will rule for, for eternity, will be placed. It is to the Israelites that he sent his only son to live among them. And here Jesus is in a room full of the leaders of the Jew, in the room full of the, of the Pharisees. And they do not know what they're missing. For whatever reason, they decide to reject him as Messiah. Perhaps they want to keep their prestige as a Pharisee. Perhaps they don't want to lose their family. Perhaps they would hurt them financially in some way. And so they reject him. But God, who works all things for good, uses their rejection, uses their rejection of his son to reach out to the ones who the Pharisees themselves reject. The poor, blind, lame, and crippled. He goes out to them and he brings them into the kingdom. And yet there is still room, so he makes another trip to the Gentiles, to the outer reaches of Israel, to, the, to Asia Minor, to Europe, to Africa. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God reaches out to the Gentiles because I am one. See, this is the God who is inviting you to dine with him. The one who works out all things for good. The one who's preparing this great glorious feast for you to dine in. And there is nothing on this planet that is worth holding on to. 
no relationship, no pleasure, no job, no money. Nothing compares to the glories of Christ. And so the application of this is very simple. Are you going to accept this banquet invitation? Are you going to RSVP? Are you going to realize that the kingdom is ready? Are you going to submit to the summons? Or will you expect vengeance when you reject? You need to admit your poverty, admit you have nothing. God's kingdom is at hand. He will prevail. And the question is, will you be a part of it or not? When I feed my daughter, Julia, sometimes she's getting better. We get into a little war over something like broccoli. And I give this little pep talk. I say, Julia, you're going to eat this broccoli. The question is, are you going to do it with a lot of spankings or with no spankings? (laughs) God's going to have this party. He's going to have this banquet. He's going to come back. The question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? And do not let the deceits of this world keep you from enjoying this heavenly banquet. In the words of Thomas Watson, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure drink a sea of wrath? Let's pray. Father God, I do pray for anyone here today who does not know you and perhaps has had their conscience pricked by this parable. I pray that you will lead them to make that commitment to RSVP, to give their lives to you, and that you will change their hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.